bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free. Thank you for pursuing us with your grace, which is motivated by your love. This was most evidenced, of course, on a cross 2,000 years ago, for which we are most grateful and thankful for, of course. We do just ask your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel Salvation and Sanctification, Part 23, we have moved, for the most part, from uh, the Gospel and Salvation, and we are moving towards the concept of sanctification. You're going to hear me really warn you a bunch, uh, as I did before I went on vacation, that these three things, it's not a mistake that they're all ganged together in one title. It's because the Spirit wants to impress upon you the importance of looking at all of it through God's lens. Gospel, salvation, sanctification, they're all part of the way God sees everything completed already. And we shouldn't just carve things up like we like to do uh, because we do ourselves a disservice, as we'll see in Scripture even. So as we put our focused studies on the gospel and salvation proper behind us, let's consider the following wrap-up principle uh, up here on the board. The issue is the sovereign, relative to the gospel, the issue is the sovereign, holy God of the universe and how he has been offended, not how his gospel might be offensive to man. The gospel presentation can be tailored, but the Savior cannot be. Again, the issue is the sovereign, holy God of the universe and how he has been offended. He didn't sin, we did. So the issue is that he is sovereign, he is holy, we are not. So therefore, that perspective is very important. It's something we got last week twice. And it's not how his gospel might be offensive to man. And that was a lot of the front end of this series was on that very topic, how uh, the gospel has been watered down, how it's really made, quote-unquote, more convenient for people. All those things are just strategies from the flesh uh, that really does a number on the gospel itself. So again, as we've learned, though, um, the gospel presentation can be tailored, but the Savior cannot be. Furthermore, <clears throat> a gospel without integrity to the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ is a false gospel. Any presentation of the true gospel must unapologetically impose a relationship between Christ and an individual. Unapologetically impose. That means that, listen, there's no getting away from the fact that we are talking about a person when we're talking about the gospel not facts about a person, not merely facts, not um, you know, judicial aspects or forensic aspects of what happens at salvation from God's perspective, but rather a real person, a real Savior, the God-man. Uh, and that's not negotiable. And that's why I use that language, that strong language, unapologetically impose a relationship between Christ and an individual. I was thinking about it. Life, think about life itself is about what? Relationships. 
It really is. Life is about relationships. The Bible describes life through the lens of personal relationships. That's what we see in the Bible. It's all about people relating to one another. Sometimes they walk away with a smile. Sometimes they walk away dead. Nonetheless, it's about relationships, is it not? I mean, you're still relating to the person if you, you know, take them out. Just saying. It's not the best kind of relationship, but it is a relationship, and that's what the Bible is built on, personal relationships. Read it. Personal relationships. One of the fundamental reasons that God became man was to personally relate to his creatures and provide a way for his creatures to personally relate to him. He could have just stayed in heaven and said, do these things and believe this thing, and I've got salvation hooked up for you, you know, blah, blah, blah. But he didn't. He became man, like one of us, so that he could personally relate to us and that we might personally relate to God the Father through the Son who became a man. Go to Hebrews 5.8. Hebrews 5.8. That's a very important thing, this concept of relationships, of relating personally, the simple fact that life itself is about relationships, that the Bible was written about said relationships, the most important one, of course, being with Christ. Hebrews 5.8 Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Well, that's something that we go through. We learn obedience through the things that we suffer. So that's not possible for God unless he becomes one of us. So there has to be some reason for that, and it's a relational issue. It's so that we do have a high priest that can sympathize with us. And that's very encouraging. Hebrews 5.8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, the point being amplified is on the board. One of the fundamental reasons that God became man was to personally relate to his creatures and provide a way for his creatures to personally relate to him. That was a major portion of last week's classes. Um, The Spirit elaborated on Tuesday with this. So some of the things that I gleaned from last week's messages came out on Tuesday as well, one of them being regarding the Great Commission. For many years, think of it this way, two plus decades for most books, the New Testament was circulating among people unwritten. The presentation of the gospel was through personal interactions. Relationships then were key, not written words or tracts. Jesus fully expected that people would be presenting his good news to other people this way. Otherwise, he would have said, the Great Commission, hold off until the canon's completed. No, he said, go out there now and present me, what you know of me, to the world. That was the Great Commission. We cannot be so unloving as to suggest that we do not have to be personally invested in those we share the gospel with. If that fire has been suppressed, have we not quenched the Spirit 
1 Thessalonians 5.19. Is it also possible that some who that some who this fire is quenched altogether may not be saved themselves? In other words, one of the fundamental things that we realize as saved individuals is that we want to share the good news. Amen? That's literally basic 101. If you've been given that kind of gift, truly, the first thing you're going to want to do is what? Go share it. Go give it to others. Go give it to family members, friends, those that, guess what, you relate to. Some of them you are related to. But nonetheless, you seek out relationships so that you can fulfill this so-called Great Commission. So we cannot be so unloving as to suggest that we do not have to be personally invested in those we share the gospel with. If that fire has been suppressed, have we not quenched the Spirit? 1 Thessalonians 5.19, in the most drastic sense, is it possible that someone without the fire altogether isn't even saved? Well, that's a question between them and the Lord. But that certainly is a possibility, and it's certainly baseline fruit that needs to be checked. I mean, think about it. If you don't want to give another human being the gospel, then what? What else? I mean, there's nothing more important in this world, in your life, than the gospel. So I guess if you don't want to give anybody the gospel, you might need to have to look in the mirror yourself. The probing question then from Tuesday evening's class was this. What do I value most in this world? And that's a reflective type question. It's a fair question I think that we should ask ourselves regularly. What do I value most in this world? I mean, why skip out on Bible class? Or why you know, not take advantage of the time that He's given you by grace? I mean, there are some people that have a, right now, that have a hard time seeing, have a hard time breathing, have a hard time just living. And the people that I talk to regularly from behind this pulpit don't have those problems on average, even the ones that are not here. So it's, what do you value most in this world? What's more valuable than learning the Word of God? I was thinking about that before I came out. I'm like, this is, this is the, not to be, you know, this is the bomb, right? This is, Bill's like, yeah, it's the bomb. It's awesome. I mean, what else is there? This is the very best thing you can possibly do with your time. Spend it with the Word of God. So it's a wonder that a local assembly like this isn't busting out at the seams. No, i got to have the treasurer come up on Sunday and talk about finances. But why is it not busting out of the scene? Because people don't value this thing above the rest of their lives. So the question again on Tuesday was, what do I value most in this world? If your heart, not your head that is telling you to say, you know, say the right thing. Oh, of course, Jesus, you know. If your heart leaps for Jesus Christ and no one or nothing else, then you are doing well and God is pleased. Romans 12, 1-3. That just means present yourselves a living and holy sacrifice because that's what's pleasing to the Lord. That's your service. This relates to your Christian walk 
all of it. Consider some scripture now, along with the following principle. Theology 101 says, if it's a command in the Bible, then it involves free will. So whenever you see a command, you have to say to yourself, well, that's a free will issue. It means you don't have to follow it, do you? God has it recorded uh, as inspired by His Spirit as a command so that you have the opportunity with your volition to follow it. So that's Theology 101. I want to show you something in a very familiar passage of Scripture, but this time as we read through it, I want to show you how prevalent your free will is by pointing out the commands in Scripture. I mean, think about it before we go there. One command is enough to chew on. One new command is enough to chew on in your life. Fair enough? If you see something, if something gets sort of inculcated in your soul um, for the first time and it hits you and now the Holy Spirit's right there convicting you of that new command, there's a lot to sort of synthesize. Well, if you read, say, go to Galatians 5.1. Go to Galatians 5.1. I'll point out the commands just as a friendly reminder But this is just an exercise to amplify the point on the board. Theology 101, if it's a command in the Bible, then it involves free will. Then it involves free will. Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Command. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Command. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we... Through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? There's a command implied there. This persuasion did not come from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn, command your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve, command one another. Again, the point of the board is, if it's a command in the Bible, then it involves free will. Let's continue. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's a command in there. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk, command, By the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, 
so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk, command, by the Spirit. Let us not become, command, boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. So you see, there are at least eight prominent commands in that one chapter in the Bible. That's eight. That's a lot of commands. Some of you are like, yeah, that's a lot of commands. <laughs> and it's a lot to think about. When Listen, that's why everybody's lazy, right? Nobody wants, I mean, let's face it, who, you know, there's so many people in this world, nobody likes to make decisions anymore for themselves. It's like, you make the decision. It's like, geez, we're just trying to go out to eat. Can someone make a stinking decision here? <laughs> right? Why? Because it's, it's easier not to have to make decisions. It's work, in other words. But God puts that onus on you. He says, every time I give you a command, it means you have to make a decision about that command. And the more commands I give you, the more decisions you have to make for or against me. And my spirit's going to be right there going, you know the right decision. You know the right decision. I don't know why I wrapped that, but... Right? You know the right decision. And he's going to be right there. But people don't like decisions. People are like, just give me a protocol or give me this thing. Just, just tell me. You tell me. You tell me if I'm filled with the Spirit. How would I know? What kind of commands do you know? Which, which commands have you, do you have faith in yet? I don't know. If I tell you what I think, you're probably never going to talk to me again. You, like most people, don't ask my advice anymore. I don't know. But the principle is that a command means free will is in view. So there's a lot of free will decision-making just in that one chapter. And, except for the, what we call auxiliary verbs, things like be or being, the action verbs, such as walk, which we saw multiple times, are all in the present active situation, the present tense active voice. So let me just give you a little Greek refresher again, just so you know. All those commands that we saw, all the action ones like walk, they were all in the present active. So present tense in Greek means it's an action, is habitual, uh, is a, excuse me, oh, that's, yes, I'm sorry. The present tense uh, means action is habitual, it's a lifestyle. It's Present tense. It's something you do. That's what present tense in the Greek means. The active voice means action is performed by the subject of the sentence, which in most cases, as you're reading it for yourself, is you. 
So if you put these two things together, the present plus the active, you have a lifestyle choice. You have a lifestyle choice. That's what it means when you see a command in the present active in the Bible. It means you have a lifestyle choice. Doesn't mean you're not going to fail, but the direction that you're heading is towards that lifestyle. That's what the command means. God has no expectations that you're going to fulfill every command without falter. That's ridiculousness. However, as we learned, and I don't want to recap it, the idea, part of the fact that you're saved is knowing that you do have that desire. But nonetheless, there's a lot of decision-making in view when you see the present active as a lifestyle choice. Many commands in the Bible refer to lifestyle choices. Commands, of course, are not the only ways the Bible reveals to us the choices we have. It also reveals our innermost motivations. So it takes us one step further to cause and affect issues. Why am I motivated to follow God's commands? Why? Why would I do that thing and not this other thing? So the Bible speaks to motivation as well. We might call that cause and effect. The Word of God encourages us to consider our motivations the root causes of our actions. That's certainly something that this pulpit has not been absent from at all in the last three years. He never lets us off the hook. We get a new command or something that's sort of new, and he says, don't just leave it there. I want you to check your motivation. I want you to look in the mirror. I want you to not just say, oh, yeah, that's a wonderful thing. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. Maybe I like it. Maybe I don't. No. Why do you not like it? Why are you considering not following it? Why do you ignore it? Why have you drowned out God the Holy Spirit every time He brings it back up in your soul for a, for a situation where that command needs to be applied? Why does that happen? What are you preserving? A little idol? I don't know. So the Word of God encourages us to consider our motivations, the root causes of our actions as well. These are the deepest of heart issues Arguably, the most recognizable verse on this topic is from Jesus himself, Luke 6, 45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Recall the key question the Spirit has on the table before us, and it remains... What do I value most in this world? Now the Spirit says, well, whatever you say, and not, you know, lip service, whatever you say, whatever comes out of your mouth is what fills your heart. So however you answer that question, what do I value most, whatever comes out of your mouth, even in the, you know, the silence of your own head, well, that's a good indicator. That's a good place to start. In other words, in this examination process, what do you value most? The higher up your scale of value something is, the more attention you give it, the more motivated you are to please the demands of that person or thing. And it's true, a thing can have a demand, can't it? You can have a hobby, you can have a job, you can have all kinds of things that demand 
your attention. That's why a lot of people say, you know, I just can't get to class, or I just can't afford to give, or I just can't do this. Yeah, why is that? Because you have 42 other things that have your attention. And who brought those into your life? You did. So why don't you get rid of some of them? What? No, what? No, no, no. I need, for my own sanity, 62 cats. I need them. You don't understand. You don't understand how important my hamsters are. You know what I mean? Like, come on, man. What are you talking about? What's more important? What do you value in this life? Your hamster or this? Seriously. What do you value more than the Word of God? There's, there's nothing that should be more valuable, but yet the way that we give our attention to so many other people and things, you wonder how many people have their scale of values even right. I taught a whole series on that, Jesus Christ being number one priority, probably four or five years ago. So the higher up your scale of value something is, the more attention you give it, the more motivated you are to please the demands of that person or thing. So it's true. The Bible reveals not only the lifestyle choices we must make each and every day, but it also speaks to our innermost motivations. For example, let's consider some additional scripture. Go to Colossians 3.23. Colossians 3.23. So the Spirit's not ready to let us off the hook. He says, yeah, there's a lot of commands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in the present active which means they're lifestyle choices that you make, so you can't blame other people even. They're choices that you make. The commands are meant for you. You're the subject of the sentence. Doesn't just leave it there. He also says, I want you to look at your innermost motivation. So I also inspired some scripture that will get you thinking along those lines. For instance, Colossians 3.23. Read between the lines. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Whatever you do, whatever you do, you're serving the Lord. That means when you take out the trash so that your wife doesn't have to, or you take out the, I don't know, I don't know, whatever. You do something. Everything that you do, you serve the Lord Christ. Everything. You let somebody that looks like maybe they're in a rush, maybe their kids are being unruly, if you let them cut you in line, it's not like you need that Big Mac any quicker anyways. DJ, you're the only one that goes to McDonald's besides me. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, I had an old lady from Elder Sponsor, most of you know who that is, an old woman, call me today, she's 90 years old, and she's got this little old voice, can you help me put on my AC cover? I can't do it. I don't know why I was doing that thing. (laughs) My luck, she's finally watching a lesson or something. You know what I mean? And... You know, I'm not saying I'm special or anything, but my first thought is that whole organization is to show the world our hearts. 
our heart for Christ. Stuff like that. Every little thing. Do you see the motivation? Go to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I told her to put on her own darn cover. <laughs> yeah, that's how I roll. Interrupt my schedule. This is my personal time. Interrupt me. I get you once a month on Mondays. Don't you know the schedule? Calling me for this frivolous stuff. <laughs> anyway. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You see how that touches motivation? Why am I going to do all this? Because it's not in vain. Because there are things that you'll never know. You'll never, I just, saw, just wrote this to someone today. You never know your impact. In someone's life. You could do the smallest, menial little thing that means nothing to you. But if you do it faithfully, just know that your toil is not in vain. Well, to me, that's motivating. It means every time I don't understand why he's asking me to do something, I can refer to this type of passage and say, well, he knows best, and therefore the toil is not in vain. Go to Proverbs 3.5. Proverbs 3.5. Proverbs 3, 5. Most of you know this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That almost captures everything. I mean, why do you follow any command from your master? Because you trust him. You trusted him to save you. So why not trust him after the fact? He's your Lord. He's your new Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Again, I mean, if you don't know what's going on, you don't know why he's asking you to do a certain something, but you know that God the Holy Spirit's knocking and you know the right thing to do and you got that call on your, on your heart, but you might not understand what's going on. It doesn't matter. There's many, many times that we have to do things that we don't understand. We just don't. But we trust, and that is the substance of our motivation. Your abilities and your desires to follow His commands, to listen to His Spirit, which really is part of being filled. You really want to know what filling of the Spirit is. It means listening to Him, following His commands. Go to Psalm 34.17. Psalm 34.17, we just established through Theology 101 that there's certainly no shortage of commands. And the more of the Word of God that you take in, the more commands you have, which means there's more that the Spirit has to work with, more opportunity, quote-unquote, for you to be properly filled even, or controlled by God the Holy Spirit along the lines of that Scripture. Psalm 34, 17. Why would you do it? Because I trust him. 
Why would I, you know, why do I not, you know, run out and do all kinds of crazy things against the word of God? Because I trust him. Psalm 34, 17. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Well, what if you don't understand how he's about to deliver you? What if you keep kicking against the net? Remember Sugclio? What if you just keep kicking against the net? Saying, I, I want to do it my way, though. But the Lord's saying, but <laughs> that's not good for you. But I want to do it my way. Well, that person that's accounted a sin. That question has come up for some of you. Again, how is one filled and controlled by the Spirit? Anytime you're talking about commands, think about that. You want to be filled? Follow His commands. That's how you're filled. The short answer is, as we noted at last night's Bible study, I borrowed this from uh, McDonald. Not the same McDonald's that DJ goes to. Believer's Bible Commentary. It's a good handy-dandy book to have on the side. The believer who is filled with the Spirit is occupied with Christ and not with self. How about that? That's nice, isn't it? Nice and simple. How do I know? Well, who are you occupied with? Christ or you? Christ's needs or your needs? Which one is it? I've learned not to make hardwired doctrines out of short explanations like this, but I do thoroughly appreciate this particular excerpt from that two-plus page commentary on Ephesians 5.18 and the filling of the Spirit. One other passage on this that relates to the point on the board, go to Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16, another passage that we studied in greater detail at the Bible study. We compared Ephesians 5.18 and forward to Colossians 3.16 and forward. You might be surprised what you see when you read them back to back. Colossians 3.16. Again, this is in reference to following commands, being filled with the Spirit. They're all hovering around the same topic. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell, command, within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or uh, deed, do, command, all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. So who has the choice of a lifestyle here? Who has the choice to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in them? You do. Who has the choice to do everything as unto the Lord, whether word or deed? You do. Who has the choice uh, to well, all do all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to Him through God the Father? Who has the choices in those things? You do. So is it really that hard? It's not hard at all. You want to be controlled by the Spirit? Do these things. Listen to what he's saying, because he's going to convict you to do these things. He's going to convict you to get off your butt and come to class. He's going to convict you to get off your butt and come to class just to encourage somebody else when you're sick 
and you don't feel like it. Didn't Jesus say something about that? Laying down your life for others, esteeming yourself, the others more important than yourself. Didn't Jesus say stuff like that? For as long as it is today, even Scripture says, let us encourage one another. That's what it means to be controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit's going to do anything He can in terms of motivating you to spark whatever happens supernaturally in your soul so that you follow His commands. So if you find yourself following His commands, guess what? You're filled. You're controlled by the Spirit. Don't make that a doctrine. I hope you know what I'm saying. But this is the direction. If after all this you still seem a little unsettled about the so-called mechanics, I don't like the word here, of being filled, I submit John's guidance. Go to 1 John 3.21. 1 John 3.21. Because <clears throat> still some people are like, well, how do I know? How do I know? I just need something. I need like a light switch. I need to, just need to know. Is it, you know, no, no, no. No. It's not a light switch. Sorry. I mean, you could be failing miserably in one part of your life and succeeding tremendously in another part. Well, was the light on or off? It's a stupid argument. That's why protocols are garbage. 1 John 3.21 Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we what? Keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Well, that's all you know. If your heart doesn't condemn you before God because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. So the emphasis there is on keeping His commandments. And what do we notice at the beginning of the class? Theology 101. To keep a commandment involves what? A free will. So being filled is very easy. What are your choices like? Do you choose sin or do you choose righteousness? If you choose sin, that's not being controlled by God the Holy Spirit because He's not the author of evil. If you choose righteousness, then you are controlled. That's not hard, is it? No. Stated differently, if you want to assure that you're filled, then obey His commands. I don't really like that angle, but whatever. Filling the Spirit. To be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit means a believer is following His commands. For example, He doesn't want you living in sin. Or He wants you to love others. Etc., etc. So if you're hating on someone... You're not really filled. And let's just face it, folks. Seriously. Brass tacks. You don't need a Ph.D. in theology to understand what God wants from you. All you need to do is listen. You don't. I mean, do you not have... Does everybody in here not have a moral compass of some sort? Of course you do. Who gave it to you? God did. Do you not have some kind of a good conscience available to you? Of course you do. Who gave it to you? God did. Do you not have God, the Holy Spirit's ministry? Active is the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, not alive and active in your soul. 
Of course all these things are true. Who made sure of it? God did. You have no excuse. You have no excuse to make decisions against God's commands. And even if you don't know the command, what's the overarching command that will guide you? Love. Does anybody in here not know how to love yet? So you don't need to be a Ph.D. to understand what God wants from you. All you need to do is listen. And you know, you know deep down in your soul when something's right or wrong. Now, if you're not willing to go there to investigate, well, now that's what you might call preemptive practices. I'm going to preempt God the Holy Spirit's conviction because I'm going to just go, la, 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 I'm not listening, I'm not listening. I'm just going to go right from work to the bar. And then I just drink so much that I'm dissipated and I don't have to listen because I can't. That's a good plan. Everybody uses all these ridiculous tactics to claim ignorance and everything else, and it's just silliness. Anyways, it's interesting that he's had us revisiting that concept again. But I'm not surprised, given the history of many of you. And speaking of commands, go to Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. The spiritual life, the more I learn in the Word of God, and I hope you do as well, is actually very easy. It's not confusing. It's not meant to be confusing. It's not difficult. It's not meant to be difficult. (laughs) It's actually very, very simple. We only complicate it because we want to make excuses or make room for ourselves or somehow sidestep like a serpent the commands of God or somehow justify something by playing games with the commands of God. I wrote a blog, the one's coming out on Saturday. I'll just blame the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit told me to do it. No, he didn't. It's amazing what people will blame the Spirit for. God, the Holy Spirit made me do that thing. I talked to him right before I did it. Really? Very interesting. Hey. Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. There's another command for you, by the way, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, another command, but be transformed, another one, by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say, and then we get to Paul's sort of posture on life, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as, so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Up here on the board as a point of review, through the grace given to me, I say, the essence of Paul's person was grace orientation. That's what motivated him was Christ himself. Christ is what? Grace and truth. The essence of Paul's person was grace orientation. He always made a point of reminding his disciples of this simple fact. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored. Why? Because God wanted him to. And he was properly what? Motivated from the heart. Because he was very humble. 
I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So to put to bed the following, what do I value most in the world? Well, there's a multitude of ways I think you could answer that for yourselves. But the quick and easy answer, just to help put it to bed, might be something like this. Well, what occupies your mind the most? That's where you'll find your answer. Whatever comes out of your mouth is that which fills the heart. So what, what's, what occupies your mind during the day? Whether you're working or playing or doing a hobby or whatever you're doing. What occupies your mind the most? That's where your answer is. That's the answer to this question. What do I value the most in this world? And if it's not Jesus Christ, if he's not with you every step of the way, good, bad, ugly, all of it, then what the Spirit's saying is, let's talk about this. Go to him in prayer and say, well, what, what gives? What's wrong with me? What, what do I need to do here? What is it that I'm missing? Uh, is it a perspective issue? Am I just a selfish crank? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm a selfish crank. <laughs> it's usually what it is, right? I mean, it's usually us. So sometimes we don't even approach it in prayer because we already know the answer before we go to prayer. So we call our friends instead who are going to back us up because they're weak. Do you, do you think I was being, uh, you know, when I did this? Oh, no. Oh, no, definitely not, sweetie. You're the sweetest girl I know. God's like, what the heck? Now I got two idiots. One's helping the other. Oh, no. Why call your friend when you can go to prayer? Seriously. Why call another person when you can go in prayer to God? Because sometimes you don't want to hear what he has to say. But anyways, what occupies your mind the most, that's where you'll find your answer. If the word of Christ richly dwells within you and you are obeying his word, consider yourself filled as well. That's not hard. That's not rocket science. Changing gears, I've only got 10 minutes left. Changing gears. One of the things that last week's lessons precipitated was this. Only God can grant repentance relative to salvation. Only God can grant repentance since man's entire person is bound to the self-life prior to being regenerated. Man is incapable of breaking that fleshly bond. He is powerless to do so. Therefore, God grants repentance a.k.a. the breaking of the fleshly bonds, and also grants the new tie that binds faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, what the Spirit's saying here as a point of review from last week, the breaking and tying is impossible for man, but nothing is impossible with God. I was thinking about it this way. Why is he making such a big issue? Because a weak gospel often leaves repentance up to man by not addressing it. A weak gospel leaves repentance up to man by not addressing it. It may even say it's not part of the gospel, which leaves it up to man by default, making it an issue of human work. That's the problem. If you leave the good news, if you leave repentance out of the good news, now it's a, what do you do with it? Now it becomes man's work. Human work. And that's no good. To help place repentance in its rightful place in the gospel message, we might consider it this way. 
It's all by grace. Repentance is an act of God upon a humble heart. It is no more work and no less a grace gift than saving faith. Otherwise, it would be what? A work. But see, that's what we covered in the first 20 or so uh, parts of this series. That's the danger of a weak gospel. It leaves those things out, thinking it's doing someone a favor, but it's actually heaping human works on them. People don't think like that, though. Satan does. Consider that since God cannot fail and all his gifts are perfect, if a person has been given repentance from God, it means that the fruit that they bear will be after its own kind. This doesn't mean a person won't ever sin again. Rather, it means that the new creature will be repulsed by sin, the bad fruit of the old life. And just reflect for a moment. Go to Romans 7.21. Romans 7.21. For the sake of encouragement... Remember that we still own a body of death. This is to encourage you in the second half of the point on the board. doesn't mean that a person won't ever sin again. Rather, it means that the new creature will be repulsed by sin. Romans 7.21, I find that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, Paul, long since saved, obviously, For I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of God sin. That just means we're not going to get it right in time. We're going to sin. Up here on the board, repentance and the vestiges of sin. For a true believer, it's going to feel like even though you've turned your back on sin, repented, it will remain, quote, behind your back trying to sow death in your life. Now, let's see if we can connect up where we left off. Uh, Yeah, let me go a little bit further. I'm going to try to give you a little bit of connective tissue. I know we're getting on like point three already, possibly four. But this is where we left off before Thanksgiving. If you recall, the Spirit had us building on all the good work regarding the gospel and salvation as we headed towards the subject of sanctification And as we were doing so, he was turning our attention to the grace of God. So it's been a couple of weeks, but before I left on vacation, that's where he had us going. He said, all right, we're we're tidied up on the gospel and salvation. We've made all the arguments. We got settled on that. We included some other aspects that maybe we hadn't included. Uh, We even looked at some of the long-term or the outstanding ramifications of a weak gospel, how it manifests or matures, so to speak, or, or evolves into false doctrines out there. We looked at all that stuff. Now I want you to look at sanctification, which just means to be set apart for God. So again, the Spirit had us building on all the good work regarding the gospel and salvation as we headed towards the subject of sanctification. And as we were doing so, we had us going towards grace. <clears throat> as is the case with the gospel, we are talking 
heart issues here. So up here on the board, here are some of the principles from a couple of weeks ago. We know that relative to the force of the gospel, we know dogmatically God's will, which is what? 1 Timothy 2.4, he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. God does everything possible to save man. However, he won't ever breach man's free will. The good news then is that if possible, God will save man. And that was this principle. God saves, not man. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ is God. God saves us by grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We looked at it this way. Grace is the vehicle. Faith is the channel through which salvation is endowed. Now, once salvation is complete, it's on to experiential sanctification, and that's why I'm kind of rushing it a little bit, because I want to get to at least some kind of a start on sanctification. So on that, we looked at Paul, which is not uncommon, when we study the Word of God. Uh, Paul is a good example of not just saving faith, but also sanctification. To Paul, the gospel was a reality, not a past experience. And this is where I'll stop, I think. To Paul, the gospel was a reality. So think of the title, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification. And what the Spirit's been saying now for a couple of weeks is, Don't separate them in your soul. Don't carve out little nice boxes with bows on them of categorical doctrines. Well, well, this is the gospel, and and, then this is salvation, and then this is sanctification. And then there's two kinds of, or three kinds of sanctification, and it's, you know, this, this, and this, and all this thing, and you get so muddied in, in the weeds that you miss the big picture. From God's viewpoint, you're sanctified. And you will be sanctified. As far as he's concerned, you're sanctified. And you need to think about it that way. Then the gospel becomes a new reality. It's not a new challenge, if that makes sense. You either believe the promises of God or you don't. Does that make sense? You're saved and sanctified at the same time. And your, your experiential sanctification is guaranteed. So why would you separate the gospel reality from the sanctification reality? Does that make sense? Yeah, there's been a lot of blank stares. You guys are toast. It's like, listen, this is too much. This is like 0.5. You didn't say concentrate, but I think you meant it at least five times. I know. I know. But he wants you to rest on that before Sunday. Think about what the gospel meant to Paul. And then think about that as his reality. We know that it was his whole life. His whole life was the gospel. Everything he wanted to know about anybody, about any situation that he came into was what? Christ and him crucified. I just want to know that everybody understands the gospel. Is. Everybody understand the gospel? He's that guy, right? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? That's all he wanted to know. And in that process, I mean, in that, if that's you, then you will be sanctified. You are being sanctified. 
Because every time you take the gospel out, think of the Great Commission, every time you take the gospel out, when the gospel is your reality, everything that you do, you're doing as unto the Lord. And it's in that frame of reference, your very life, that you're sanctified. It's in that pristine situation that he's got you. He's got your attention, right? You, you, all you're focused on is the gospel. And because he has your attention to that degree, and all you, all you care about when you go out, when you interact with others, when you relate with others, is the gospel. And in that frame of reference, in that life of yours, he's able to sanctify you. That's why they're not separate. It's not, okay, I'm saved, that's over here. Now what do I do? What do I do? What do you mean, what do you do? It's from faith to faith. That's what Paul said. That's why this is one of his greatest statements, quote-unquote, in the Bible. Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You're tethered to the gospel. If the gospel, in other words, is a past tense to you, if your salvation is a past tense for you, you're missing the point. Talk about motivation. How about the one simple fact that you get to go to heaven because of that? Well, yeah, he's right there. Because of that. How about that? Just live in gratitude. What does 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 15 through 17 say? Right? Be grateful for everything. Because that's the will of God. So if you're in the will of God because you're grateful for everything because of the gospel, that's your reality. Now he's got you in the place where he can sanctify you. Does that make sense? That's the best I can do. You guys almost toasted my voice out. You'll get it. If, you're not, if it still seems a little bit nebulous, uh, just blame the teacher. Sorry. True. I'm flawed. You'll get it. The Holy Spirit will make sure you get it. Amen? All right. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. All right.